If a cartoonist wants to make someone look ludicrous, they can just simply create a caricature, right? What's a caricature? You take something about a person's face that, um, you know, that's unusual or unattractive, and you exaggerate it. You make it prominent. You make it large. And in doing so, you make the person look foolish. Well, in today's passage uh, that we're going to look at from Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 38, Jesus' opponents are, are trying to sort of caricaturize his view of the resurrection, uh, of heaven, and, and the afterlife. They want to make him look r- ridiculous, and so they ask him an absurd question about marriage and heaven. And what I'm really thankful for, we have this passage, Jesus doesn't blow them off. I mean, he certainly could have, and that would have been my tendency. But instead of blowing them off, he answers them, and he ends up giving us just some extremely encouraging information about like what heaven is going to be like. What are our relationships with one another going to be like? And ultimately, you know, what is a relationship with God going to be like in the world to come? Luke 2, 20, rather, verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? And Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for to him all are alive. Let's pray. Take these words, Lord, we, we pray, and use them to inspire our hope for the future. Not that we would um, be so heavenly-minded that we would neglect our duties here on earth, but that, that we might actually live with greater purpose during the time you give us here on earth, knowing that such a wonderful future, um, a, a future of love with other human beings, is waiting in store for us. And so do this, we pray, as we ask it in your name. Amen. So this story takes place during the last week of Jesus' life in the temple courts as he's being barraged by questions from his two primary opponents, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, These two groups, they were not like natural allies. Um, In fact, they were kind of on the opposite end of the religious and the cultural um, uh, sphere, if, if you will. The one thing that they shared in common is their mutual distaste and hatred for Jesus Christ. And so it's basically the Sadducees turn at the bat. It's, and so they concoct a story about seven brothers, each of whom were married to the same woman and were supposed to produce a, a male heir with her. And the one thing that stands out to me about these brothers is, like, they must have been real dimwits. I mean, how did they not realize that they were dealing with a very dangerous woman here? <laughs> seven, you're right, seven brothers, they all die. You're like, I, I would be thinking Black Widow situation immediately. 
Very dangerous woman. I mean, if I'm brother number four, by that time, I'm like, I'm moving as far away from Israel as, as possible. Um, dangerous, dangerous woman. So the Sadducees, they bring this story. And one thing they need to know about them, they only hold to the first five books of the Bible. They consider the, the five books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, as authoritative scripture, and the rest of the Bible um, they reject. And since there's very little talk in those first five books about oh, the immortality of the soul, or life after death, or resurrection, it's hard to find it in those first five books, then they rejected it along with a number of other you know, doctrines, but they don't believe in the resurrection for that reason. The, their question assumes the background of what we just read, Deuteronomy 25. This practice referred to as leveret marriage from the Latin word levir. That's uh, Latin for brother-in-law. If a woman was married and then her husband dies before they have children and she has no children to care for her and because she's already been married, she's maybe considered damaged goods and so she's unlikely to be able to find another another husband. And it wasn't easy for a woman in that culture to just run out and, and get a job. The idea, Deuteronomy 25, if the husband dies childless, the brother is to marry her to preserve the family line, like Craig said, the name of the family, um, and as a way to, to care for her. Well, the Sadducees use lever of marriage to concoct this seven-brother hypothetical scenario, and their point in telling it this way is simply, like, what a joke. I mean, how silly is this, right? To, for you to believe in the resurrection. Can you imagine a woman walking into heaven's gates? It's almost like a, a guy walks into a bar kind of joke, right? But walking into heaven's gates and waiting there to greet her are seven previous husbands. It's, you know, whose wife is she going to be? Are they going to cast lots for her? Ha ha, so silly Jesus. And even though that argument doesn't seem that, I don't know, persuasive to us, it does raise a legitimate point that if we are going to believe in the resurrection, we have to explain what it'll be like for someone who's had more than one spouse in this life. And um, last time I checked, like that's more than half of us in America. Like that's more than half of us. And so what do we say to a Christian who um, may have remarried either after the death of their spouse or remarried after divorce? Like, what is heaven going to be like for them? And even more broadly, what is heaven going to be like, like for all of us? Look at verse 35. Jesus says, For those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. No marriage in heaven. Like, simple, blunt, simple and sweet. Uh, like, not a whole lot of room there for differencing, differences in interpretation. I gotta tell you, though, that, um, or maybe I should even ask you, like, how does that verse strike you? I know for me, personally, verse 35 would be like, probably one of the, if not the most disappointing verses in, in all of the Bible. Because probably the happiest part of my life, you know, thus far, has just been, you know, my marriage to Aaron, really. Uh, I've told you our story. Most of you have heard our story. We literally went to college, sat down next to each other at a campus Christian group. The very first time we'd ever been there, sitting, we sat down right next to each other. Love at first sight, you know, you know fall in love, date in college, get married with a year left of college, um, have kids early. Like, I, yeah, we feel like we've lived a very, very charmed marital existence. And I know that that's not everybody's experience. So that's probably, you know, not the majority of people's experience. But it has been ours. I've told many people that, like, of the 
the different aspects of my life, the part that's been the easiest has been marriage. And again, that's not most people's experience, but it has been ours. And so when I get to verse 35, I mean, the first thing that goes through my mind is I don't want to give up my marriage. Like no marriage in heaven. I mean, in my petulance, I might even say, why don't you want to go (laughs) if there's not going to be any marriage in heaven? Now, there is a marriage in heaven. It's just not the kind of marriage that we think of. It, it, it's this you know, grand narrative of the Bible is the, the great final marriage is between the groom, Jesus, and his bride, his, his people, his followers. But something I can appreciate about verse 35 is this. You know, one of the most common criticisms of Christianity and of faith in general, especially in our secular time right now, is that faith is basically a psychological crutch for weak people. Um, and that was, that was a, a, an earlier, like, Marxist. I think Marx himself, you know, made that critique of faith. Faith is a psychological crutch for weak people. And really, heaven, the doctrine of heaven, the doctrine of an afterlife, is nothing more than itself a psychological crutch for people who are afraid of entering into the great unknown, aka death. Like, and so what we do as human beings is we kind of imagine the things we like about this life, and we uh, sort of transfer that into the afterlife and, and think that we'll just kind of carry those things with us. I mean, wasn't it the pharaohs who the, their burial tombs were filled with all kinds of things that they, um, their possessions that they would take into the afterlife? And so, yeah, anybody heard that, that argument before? I mean, surely you have. Um, I, I guess what I appreciate so much about verse 35 is if the early Christians were just making heaven up, wouldn't they have come up with something that included a, a sexualized existence in eternity for the future? I mean, something that included marriage and, frankly, sex in heaven. Like, one of the, the, the things that's striking about Jesus' answer is how he presents a non-sexualized view of eternity. And that, like, if you know anything about religion, you know that's kind of rare, actually. I mean, the, the, most visions of the afterlife have some kind of sexual, you know, component to them. Um, I mean, there are branches of Islam, of course, that believe that if a martyr dies in, you know, in, in pursuit of the cause, pursuit of the faith, that, you know, he's going to go to paradise and he's going to enjoy 70 virgins with translucent skin and, and drinking the finest wine. Um, a little closer to home, Latter-day Saints, temples, you see those things around? Uh, you may not realize this, but if you are a faithful LDS and you get your marriage sealed in the temple, the belief, the, 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 the very important belief is that your marriage will last for all of eternity. Um, and some of their prophets taught that the role of a husband and wife is to procreate in eternity, like spirit babies that will go on to inhabit, you know, future worlds. But even in the secular world, I mean, it was Freud who said that basically, like, all, everything is about sex. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's Freudian, right? Everything that we can think of between, you know, a relationship with a child and, her, and their mother, a relationship with a child and their father, really, and it's all about sex. And sadly, our culture has become, like, terribly Freudian because it does feel like so much of everything is about sex. What I appreciate is that the Christian vision of heaven um, that Jesus presents is not Freudian like wish fulfillment. It's it's not God. Jesus is not giving us exactly what we want, if you will. Um, what he's saying is marriage is not ultimate, and sex is not ultimate. And I guess that you know what that shouldn't surprise you. It really shouldn't surprise you because 
What we maintain is the man who lived the most satisfied life on earth, the most joyful life on earth, the most fulfilled life on earth, ends up being a bachelor and a virgin. And so it shouldn't surprise us that God's vision for the future is, it rebukes all of that. That's number one. Uh, the second thing that I appreciate in Jesus' statement is how it re- rebukes the myth of you complete me. Um, we hear this often at weddings about, you know, how everybody has a somebody out there for them. <laughs> you know, especially after the wedding when you're at the, um, you know, eating and drinking and, and maybe the, um, you know, best man or, or the bridesmaid, you know, give their speech and they, they say, you know, it was like, now I can see that you finally found your soulmate, that person who completes you and your dreams are realized and your life like is going to be perfectly fulfilled. And implied in all of this, this American romantic ideal is the belief that I am incomplete until you love me. I am incomplete until you love me. And also oftentimes implied is all my value and worth is tied up in you loving me. (laughs) And that has been the American romantic ideal for, um, you know, decades and decades. Maybe it's starting to die (laughs) a little bit right now. But um, the whole idea that if you don't get married and find that special someone, then you've missed out on an essential part of life. Like that has been told over and over and over again. And I think Christian singles are subject to this repeatedly in the church. You guys correct me if I'm wrong, but but this kind of thinking is is in the church. Like the whole, you're not married? How old are you? <laughs> Ever been asked that before? Um, or, I mean, very cringy, like, don't worry. God just has a little bit of work to do on you before he brings that special someone into your life. Like that type of or the ultra cringy, like, you have to be someone special before God can give you someone special. <laughs> and, you know, normally maybe it doesn't come in that bold of a form, but let's be honest. It, if you're 47 and you're a Christian, nice Christian gal, guy in the church, and you still aren't married, people are like, what's wrong with you? That's what's implied is, oh, there's got to be, there's got to be something wrong with you. Aaron's college roommate, like a gal who just the sweetest, most godly, heart for Christ kind of woman, like servant of the kingdom, um, has, has, I think, to my knowledge, always desired to be married. And yet at, at 46, she's still not. You know, always desired to have a family, to have kids, and she's still not. And when people find out, like, you're not married? You've never been married? When they find that out in the church, they're like, well, what's wrong with her? Well, nothing's wrong with her. That's a myth. The whole you complete me thing, it is, it is a myth. Like, if you're looking to your spouse to complete you, that's just a weight that they cannot bear. <laughs> There's only one who can complete you. Here's a key point, though, from um, what Jesus teaches. And it, Whenever we hear that something will be missing in heaven or something will be different in heaven than we are expecting, our assumption just ought to be that that something is going to be replaced with something better. (laughs) If something is going to be missing, um, if there's not going to be marital love in heaven, then we should assume it's going to be replaced with something higher and richer and deeper and better. And so you say, what is that something? And I think heaven is going to be a place of the most exquisite, the absolute most exquisite friendships. Um, it's not going to be just simply friendships, but it's, it's going to be like the, the greatest of marital love and the greatest of, of friendships on, on steroids. You multiply. 
Um, it, they will, it, it will be deep friendships. And you know, the, the trends were already there before the, the pandemic that Americans are losing friends. You know, they don't have friends. Just, it was already there, but then the pandemic just sent it into overdrive. And, and now, more than half of the people in our country to sit today say they barely have any friends. And that problem is especially acute with men. I mean, it, it really is a tragic loss that so few of us can say, yeah, I got a really good friend and we're actually going to do something together on Wednesday night of, of this week. I mean, honestly, could, could you say that? Thursday night of this week, Friday night of this week. Think about, think about when you were a teen and what friends meant to you back then. You know, I've had five teenagers, so I think I'm something of an expert on teenagers. And we've had this conversation more than once in my home. Like, mom, dad, I, I want to go out tonight. And we're like, okay, well, uh, where do you want to go? I don't know. <laughs> All right. Well, um, what do you mean you don't know? <laughs> well, where, where are you going to go? Um, and they'll be like, well, I don't know. And then, well, okay, well, how long are you going to be out? Well, I don't know that either. So you don't know when you're going to go out, what you're going to do, where you're going to go. Um, like, what are you? <laughs> well, who are these people? They're, they're teenagers. Um, and when they say that we're going out, what they mean is, I don't care where or when or what. I just want to be with these people. Like, I don't care what we do. Who needs a destination when you're with the people that you love? Something happens as you matriculate through life and you get to your 40s and, you know, you're, you did your 30s and you're just grinding on your job and the same thing in your 40s. Something happens where you you just kind of forget how sweet that was. Like, it doesn't matter, um, just as long as we get to spend the time together. I talked about it, it was either last week or the week before, how, you know, most people today view friendship as uh, a luxury. Like, they're so, we're so busy, like, it would be nice if I could have friends, but I'm just so busy grinding on everything that, uh, you know, I can't fit it into my schedule. I, that's tragic. Like, just the sweetness of doing anything together with someone whom you love, where the conversation is unrushed and unforced. I mean, you could be experiencing a concert together, or you're out fishing on a river, or you just whatever. You know, times filled with loud laughs and silly moments, and, and also v- vulnerability. And even, I dare say, like, a friendship that also has a component of virtue is so sweet where you have somebody who is helping you be the, the person that you aspire to be and know that you ought to be, and they're rubbing off on you, like a friendship of virtue. Um, heaven is going to be that on steroids. <laughs> so we had a group that went on a hike you know, Saturday. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to go because I was at a theology conference, but I wish I was would have been hiking. They did Tom's Thumb and, and here some pictures of, of the group. A number of kids, that was the very first hike that they had ever been on. You know, Dave brought them um, from South Phoenix. And if you get to the top of Tom's Thumb and you look out on the valley, it kind of feels like you're almost floating in the air. It feels like you're, you just jumped out of an airplane and you look out and you can just see forever. And it, it's so awesome. It's just awe-inspiring and, and it's, it's striking. And when the kids got to here, um, on the count of three, one, two, three, when they took the picture, they all yelled out aloud, Sandy, we did it, right? We, we did it. We, we made it. And I think they had a really sweet time. I just imagine 
um, and most of these, like, our crew didn't know the kids, and, and the kids didn't know our crew. And yet they, there was still such fun with it. Imagine, like, what it would be like to do that with somebody who knows you inside and out, and who loves you inside and out, and who's, who sticks closer to you than, than anything you have ever experienced. To be able to just do um, heavenly life, whatever that means, to get to do that forever together. You know, I think if you think, um, if you think back to a time in your life when you had one exceptionally great group of friends, um, heaven is going to be analogous to, to that group. Okay, one more thing that Jesus says we should consider when we're talking about the afterlife, and it's in verse 30. He says, but in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the Lord, the, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, Jesus, interestingly enough, he decides he'll, he'll play ball on the Sadducees' turf. Notice he's quoting here from Exodus chapter 3, a book that they would have considered as authoritative. And he says, you know, when God revealed himself to Moses by saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, what he was saying is, I am, I am theirs. Theirs. What, what, in the English language, theirs, what, what is that? Isn't that a theirs with a apostrophe S? I mean, it's functioning as a possessive, right? A possessive uh, pronoun, right? And the English possessive, possessive pronoun, I'm sure you haven't thought about this recently because you haven't done any grammar in a long time, but it's a curious animal. Like when I say, you know, that is um, my car, well, what I mean by that is I own that car. That is my house. Use the possessive. It assumes that, okay, I own the house. All right. What about that is my daughter? Hmm. Does it apply there? Does it? Am I saying when I, that is my daughter, am I saying that somehow I own <laughs> my daughter? She would definitely disagree, <laughs> as would I. Um, no, because the possessive normally refers to ownership, but it, when you're talking about another human being, it's not ownership. It assumes that there's a deep personal relationship between the two. And the same is true when you use apostrophe S's. If we say Brad's car, Brad's home, I own them both. Brad's Anya, I can use her because she's not in here right now. Brad's Anya, does that mean that I own her? No, what it means is that I am hers and she is mine. And so do you, see, do you see how crazy it is that God, the God of the Bible, chooses to reveal himself to us in this way? What's astounding is throughout the Bible, he is perfectly willing to, to be known by the apostrophe S as Abraham's God, as, as Isaac's God, as Jacob's God. And he even goes so far as to say in the new covenant that Jesus enacts, your God. I am your God. Like he gives himself to us in a special relationship we call covenant. And he says, you are my people and I am your God. It, it's just astounding that the God who is holy, 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 um, thrice holy with seraphim, you know, singing around him, that that God of the universe would choose to be known like possessively, if you will, um, with us. And the other thing you discover about this relationship that Jesus is highlighting is the tense of the word. It's, he says, I am the God of Isaac, uh, Abraham, you know, Jacob and Isaac 
and and um, I, he says I was. He's not saying I was the God of them. I, he says I am the God of them. And the idea being, if you can still follow me, if God enters into a possessive relationship of self-giving, it's always an I am relationship. Like that relationship will never, never, ever slip into the fat into into the past tense. You know, the greatest horror that we have in this life is when a relationship of love goes from present to past. Like, you never ever want to have to say, that was my daughter, that was my son, that was my friend. And yet all of our relationships go into the past tense. But it will never be said, never be said, that I was Abraham's God. And it'll never be said that I was your God. No. In other words, Jesus assures us he will not let the grave extinguish this, this, giving, um, this giving relationship. It, it ne- the grave will never push it into the past tense. He says, I will always be known as yours, and it will be and always and forever yours, because the love of Jesus Christ is too strong to let it be anything else. In conclusion, what is heaven going to be like for someone um, who's remarried in this life to another Christian? Well, it's going to be the same as it is in all of our other relationships in heaven. It's going to be a place, a world of love that is so incredibly powerful um, that after the resurrection, the the love we have will eclipse the the greatest marital love, the greatest sexual uh, giving between one another, even the greatest friendships. It's going to make all of those look like nothing by comparison. And because he is the God of the living, we will always have him. And we will always have each other, but we won't have each other with all of our sin. <laughs> That'll be gone. And I think that's what's incredible. Like all of the baggage of the past, all the different ways that you know, husbands and wives and, and parents and kids, like all the different ways that we have hurt each other, all the wounds and the scars and all the terrible things that we have done um, in that world, they will be no more. Best of all, we, the community of Christ's followers, will finally be married to the ultimate groom. Um, as somebody once put it, they said, I think this was Teresa of Avila um, modified, that uh, the first moment in the arms of Jesus, our groom, is going to make a thousand years of misery on earth look like one bad night in a bad hotel. <laughs> yes, because heaven Heaven is going to be a world of love. What an amazing promise. Love that is beyond marriage. Love not beneath marriage, not below marriage, but infinitely above and beyond marriage. You know, that is what we have to look forward to. Amen.